Welcome to Mejita Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Altergut, the Chief Experience Officer of the CX Edge. Today, I'm very excited to have with us Mike Foster. Mike has been through a number of different Mejita conventions and webinars over the years. He's an IT best practices and cybersecurity specialist. He's also the author of The Secure CEO, How to Protect Your Computer Systems, Your Company, and your job. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Sherry. Well, this has to be a very busy time for you, I would imagine, with all of the changes that we've been going through and, and companies having to switch to work from home so quickly. Um, so we're very excited to have you today. Thank you for taking some time to, to join us and kind of talk through maybe some of these questions that I've heard from a lot of material handling executives over the last few months, especially as it relates to security risk. Um, for their employees and their computer systems. So we're gonna go ahead and jump right in. Uh, kind of speaking that, as you know, a lot of organizations have had to go through a lot of changes very quickly um, and have been relatively successful in getting it done. But I think there is a concern of the additional security risks involved in doing that. So what types of additional security risks are there now that many employees are working from home? We've got one of our clients, his name Matt, he lives in Philadelphia and they have a really great company. And he told me the other day, because they unfortunately suffered a major, major computer breach. The attackers got in, shut down their servers, and then all their workstations started popping up a message that said, well, we'd be glad to put you back to normal the way you used to be all you have to do is send us a hundred thousand dollars in cryptocurrency mm -hmm. and looking back at the situation matt would rather have paid the money because it's just taken them mm -hmm. so long to get going they've lost so much money in the process however in a way it turned out i don't know you never say anything like that turns out good but that's mm -hmm. exactly what you're talking about is with the shift from working at the office to all of a sudden working from home, it's been very devastating for a lot of organizations. And one of the reasons for that is a rush. There were some companies that were used to all their workers working from home and it was no big deal when the stay-at-home order came out. However, there were a lot of organizations that were used to their employees being in-house. So then when everyone had to go home, the companies had to scramble. You know, how are we gonna get remote access for them? How are we gonna do this? How are we gonna do that? And when you're making big changes, there are two different aspects. One, of course, is the capabilities, but the other aspect is security. And what ended up happening, because everyone was pressed for time, they focused on the ability to work remotely first, and they're gonna get to security right after they finish the ability. And that's fine, I understand that. I, unlike a lot of cybersecurity professionals, I fully understand and even encourage people to be able to get their work done over and above being secure. Now that said, I'm not saying ignore security forever. You know, it, it would have been great if those organizations had immediately gotten busy on the security as soon as they got people up and running. But most of them didn't. It was a rush to get going. There was always one more thing, one more thing. And that's why Matt said, we would have never had this breach had it not been for COVID and everybody having to work from home. So that's one of the most important things is for people to realize rushing was a big risk. Now they've got time. They need to make sure the security is up to speed. Another big problem we're seeing now is through COVID, there are a lot of people using more and more social engineering. And one of the issues with social engineering is it's gotten really good 
because there's some big data aggregation companies and one of them is OxyData and they had a, a huge breach where the attackers got in. What these data, data aggregation companies do is they gather information on every one of us. So Sherry, for you and for me and for your listener right now, data aggregation companies know where you live, where you work, what routes you take on the way to the office, what your hobbies are, who your friends are. It just, they know everything about you, literally. So the attackers, when they broke in, they were able to access all of the information on every one. So you can imagine how much easier it is now for the attackers to target what we call spear phishing people directly because they can say, hey, this is your, you know, whatever they want, your health club, if they know where you go work out and you need to renew or your account's been compromised, you know, click here or open this attachment. It's all about what you need to know with our new COVID policies. So people are tempted. They think it's real. So they go ahead and click on the link and away they go. So the social engineering aspect is just through the roof. And that's one for everyone to know about. Another one is the attackers are able to get in remotely to all the users endpoints. So before an attacker was limited, let's suppose when you're let's say your listener right now has one company. Okay, that company has for sure at least one publicly exposed address out into the world. And maybe they have 254 addresses or anywhere in between. It just depends on how large the organization is. But that was the attack surface for attackers trying to break in from the outside. That was their attack surface. But now if a company has 10 users working from home or 100 or 1,000 users working from home, now those are... 10, 100, or 1,000 different access points for attackers to be able to penetrate. So it's just gotten huge out there. In the old days, you used to have to be more secure than the next guy was the idea. Mm-hmm. That's, that's no longer the case. You know, attackers are just hitting as many places as they can, as fast as they can. So it's a huge attack surface. And I'm so happy you're giving me this opportunity to present to your listener here so they understand and know about this. Yeah, Another I've certainly thing. seen that they're they're focused on quantity over quality. So it's you know targeting maybe thousands or millions of people in hopes they just need one percent, two percent, you know, to respond to kind of meet their goals and expectations. That's right. That's right. It just it's so the landscape has changed so much. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's happening that is really hurting organizations is they use a VPN, but they don't use it correctly. This is actually how the breach happened ultimately in Philadelphia, is they were allowing people to use their home computers to connect through a what's called a VPN, known as a virtual private network. VPNs are like a, a pipeline, if you will, that connect the remote user to the office, and it's private. Some people say it's secure. It's not. It's private because in that pipeline, nothing gets in, nothing gets out. Attackers can't manipulate the data. So that aspect is really, really good, the privacy part. But it's not secure at all because if an attacker gets in at either endpoint, they're in trouble. My son, Zach, has a friend, David. In fact, David was visiting yesterday. But if you go out to David's home, we live in Montana. David lives south of Bozeman, pretty close to Yellowstone. And they have a big barn and a big house. And between them, they have a tunnel. Literally, they can walk underground from the house to the barn and back in the middle of winter, even if it's 10 below zero, and they are not exposed to those temperatures. And I use in presentations frequently a a graphic. So if you can imagine right now in your mind a a barn 
separated from a house with some trees in between on a slide. And then I draw a, a tunnel underneath the barn going to the house. So that's the image I used. And then I throw up an image of a bear walking between the trees. And I explain to people, you know, as long as you're in the tunnel, not only are you safe from the elements, you're also safe from bears. <laughs> so that, that tunnel is literally like a VPN. In fact, when we IT pros talk about VPNs, we frequently say we're tunneling in, and that's the term we use. The bears, though, could be the bad actors. They're trying to break in. And of course, the bear's not gonna be able to get into the tunnel, that's the whole point. But what some IT professionals, no one has told them, and certainly not most executives, is that if the bear gets in the house, the bear can walk to the barn through the tunnel. Or if the bear gets into the barn, they can walk to the house under the tunnel. So having a VPN, having a tunnel, really gives companies a very, very false sense of security. And it leads to problems when they get breached down the road. So what can you do about that? Well, one thing is stop using VPNs. There's other technology mm -hmm. out there. One of the most popular is to use what's called a cloud gateway, which means your remote users, they basically access the network through a browser. They may, may be using Edge, Safari, Chrome, Firefox, and they get their work done that way through the actual browser. Instead of being connected to the office where generally the programs are running locally on the computer, and it provides a path straight into the company for an attacker once they get into the home computer. So gateways are a great way to go. If they are gonna use a VPN, what they need to do is put a cage at each end of the tunnel so the bear can't get through the tunnel. So it's the same with the VPN. And I'm not trying to get too technical here and I probably will stop right there on the technical part, but your IT team, if they don't know how to set up what's called filtering, that they only let remote desktop uh, protocols through, then they need to do that. They need to filter everything down as tight as possible. In other words, put a really good door, a cage at both entrances to the tunnel entrance and the exit. So I think if, if we could kind of stay on that topic, and I think you raised a lot of good points. Um, you know, first that I think companies were in a rush to survive and have people work from home. So security kind of took a, a back seat. Um, on the topic of people using their own personal computers, maybe personal cell phones, personal tablets, because organizations might not have been set up for remote workers, especially within the material handling environment. Um, what is there anything, and you, you talked a little bit about the VPN and, and accessing kind of your company system. But if you are using your personal computer, or you're a company that have asked employees to use their personal computer just because of time constraints and letting them work from home, is there anything that those employees should be doing to increase the security on their computers? Many things, thank you for asking that. One of the things they all need to do is remove Flash and Java. Flash is an old technology, it was used for allowing websites to be able to put videos up on a user's computer, which of course that was important because at some point we were all just used to looking at static web pages and all of a sudden we could see videos, you know, and some of your listeners, their grandparents will have to tell them about those days. <laughs> Flash has been around that long and it's deprecated. People don't use it anymore, but since it exists, it's almost ubiquitous on computers out there in the world. Everybody has Flash. So it has a huge attack surface, not because Adobe's not locking it down. Adobe spends a lot of time trying to make it secure, but the attackers are always one step ahead of breaking it. So the, the point is your users need to remove Flash. 
And the good news is Flash is going to stop working on December the 31st of this year. But don't wait till then. Get ahead of the curve and disable Flash and uninstall it from your computers. Another one is kind of along the same lines, and it's called Java. In Java, if your users go to remove programs on a Windows machine and install programs, they should see Java listed if it's on their machine, and they need to just click uninstall. If they do find out that they need Java, or very unlikely that they need Flash, they could reinstall those, but just make sure they don't reinstall it. Those, you listener, please don't reinstall Flash or Java from a little pop-up on your screen that says, hey, you need to get Flash, click here. Never do that. <laughs> go to <laughs> Adobe. <clears throat> Yeah, it's I think very, I think it's the best practice to never click any button that pops up randomly on your screen. Um, yes, I have seen that a number of times with both Flash and Java. Now, just yes. for listeners and and people might be thinking, well, I never remember downloading Flash or, or downloading Java. It could be there depending on the, how old your computer is. I think it could be there for years, and you could have unknowingly downloaded it at some point. Or something is that an accurate statement it's very accurate in fact a lot of computers do come with flash and java pre-installed okay. and if, if you're if your listener who is on the call right now or listening to this audio i should say they should go to get.adobe.com slash flash player so that's where they get flash is it get.adobe.com slash flash player and the place they're going to get Java, and this is only if they need Flash or Java, because I hope they don't. But if they do find out after they install Java, some things don't work, then they might go to java.com to be able to download the latest version, most up-to-date, most secure version of Java. Awesome. So if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll dive into the next item, too. I really appreciate your questions. They're helpful. I, there's so many yeah. things to do. <laughs> you know, uh, it was hard to even come up, I think, with a defined list of questions for this because I even personally have so many questions in this space. Um, and hopefully maybe we can do a follow-up one sometime to kind of discuss some of the further questions. Uh, but to get the topic of, of using personal devices and what to do, I know especially in this industry, we have a lot of field service technicians, a lot of salespeople, there were a number of employees that were already set up to work from home. <clears throat> and I've seen companies do this in two different ways. Um, and taking the, the laptop aside, when you're using a phone or tablet to work and it's your personal phone or tablet, are there additional security risks that maybe wouldn't be associated if you were only using a laptop? Yes, there are, and something I do want to put put out there, and that is that using users, allowing them to use their personal devices is a terrible thing. But just for financial reasons, some companies have needed, it's been essential mm -hmm. for those users to use their own personal devices, which is extremely insecure because your IT team has very little control of those remote devices. But let's address that right now. That's good. One of the, most important things is to not use a VPN in those situations. The bear can easily get in a barn in that situation. So a cloud gateway is much more secure so that no programs actually run on that remote user's computer. And of course, Flash and Java, there's something else on people's computers and it's called user level security. And it's local user, meaning even though at the office, whenever a user's logged on, they may not be able to see the payroll files. That's good. That's the office level security. What I want to address for the next three minutes or so is local security. So on your computer, you have the ability to uninstall and reinstall 
programs. You have the ability to add new users if you want to, remove users. You have a lot of things you can do, and that's because when you buy a brand new computer, you are what's called a local administrator. What I need all your users to do is become a local standard user. That means you will no longer be able to do some of the things on your computer you could before, like installing programs and adding users and some of the other things. And the reason for that is when an attacker gets into your computer, sometimes they get in and they're pretending to be you. In other words, they log on through your account. That's why attackers don't need to know passwords anymore is the attacker waits till you're logged on. Then you click on a link in an email message or you open an attachment or you go to a website that has an advertisement on the web page that infects your computer. That's something called malvertising and a drive-by download. If any of those things happen, you were already logged on as a user. So when the attacker comes in, they have all the rights and privileges that you have. So that's why I need you to become a standard user. So when the user, when the attacker comes in with you, they're going to be able to only have standard user. And the way to do that, and you can do this in Mac and Windows. It's really three steps. The first step is, since you're an administrator, you can create a second user. Then, second step is promote that user to be another administrator. So at this point, there are two administrators, you and that new user. And then the third point, third step is to demote yourself from being an administrator to being a standard user. And just work that way all the time. And chances are you'll never need to use that administrative capabilities. And if you do, for example, if you're installing a new program and you're a standard user, your computer will say, wait a minute, you can't do this. You're a standard user. However, if you'll enter the administrator's username and the administrator's password, we'll let you do it. So it's really straightforward and easy. And that's one of the most important things people can do at their home. And I'll just toss it out there too. At the office, when COVID's over, please, we hope that soon, at the office, people on their workstations are frequently set up as a local administrator, and that's just bad. So it's something that can be fixed in the office as well. Something else that your end users need to do on their home computers, or even if it's a company issue device, they need to install what are called critical security patches. And it's not just the operating system. It also includes patches to programs, in particular patches to browsers. Because when you think about it, if the user clicks a link in an email message, that's going to take the user to a website that could have malicious code. Or if the user's just browsing and they go to a website that has an advertisement with malicious code built into the ad, in either of those cases, that malicious code is going to attack their computer. And the goal is to have the computer so hard, we actually call it hardening, have the computer so hard that those attacks just bounce right off. Well, when the attack comes, the first place it's going to attack is the browser. And again, we're talking Internet Explorer, Edge, Safari, Firefox, Chrome. That's the first place that attack will hit. So you need to be sure that your browsers are the very most recent version, that they're all up to date. And sometimes it's difficult to do that because whenever an attack program hits that browser, one of the first things the attack program does is turn off the automatic update because your browsers are supposedly updating themselves all the time. Now, when we go in and do audits of organizations, we're looking at all the computers, sometimes we'll find one or two computers that are not up to date. We'll look at those and sure enough, an attacker is in those computers and disable the updates. So your, your listener here, they can go in and, and check part of the browser. One of the menu items is gonna be checked for updates. It is a manual step, but a real good one to take. 
And another thing for people to do on their home computers, of course, is to use antivirus. And you can talk to your IT pro at the company about which one they want you to use, which one they prefer. And it may be that your IT pro at your company even issues you an antivirus because that way they can remotely monitor that for scans, do some other things that'll help them. Definitely use antivirus. And another thing is going back to the browsers, which we talked about a little bit, your browsers are gonna ask you, would you like to remember the passphrase? Whenever you log on to a site, your browser's gonna say, do you remember this passphrase so you can use it in the future? We call it a password sometimes. But the answer needs to be no. In fact, you wanna go into the settings and turn off that question to ask you if you want your browser to remember the password because even though it's much more convenient not to have to type in those passwords, remember the browser is the first place those attacks are gonna hit. So you sure don't wanna store your password someplace where the attacks are gonna immediately attach. So what do you do to remember passwords? The best way to do that is to write them down, store them in an encrypted file, or use a password manager. Password managers mm. will, they'll function the same way the browser does, where they'll fill everything in for you. And a lot of password managers will also reach out to your other devices. So some people have a desktop, a laptop, they have an iPad, they have an Android tablet, they have an iPhone, they have an Android phone. It, using those tools will make their life much easier. And some example tools would be like Dashlane, LastPass, 1Password, Keeper, RoboForm. There's so many out there. And if they don't know which one to get, I would encourage them to talk with their IT pro at their company because some people are very biased toward one or the other one of these, and you might as well use the tool your IT pro likes the best. Something else is some people don't think about on their home computers is the physical security. So if hopefully in home offices, nobody's gonna be up to no good, but chances are you wanna be able to give people plausible deniability and not give them access to your computers at all. So that's important. And then another thing would be to power down that computer when they're not using it. At the very least, they should disconnect it from Wi-Fi at the home or a cable if they're using a cable. But attackers tend to like to be in systems where they have unlimited access, especially through the night. So making that unable to happen, blocking the ability for attackers to connect remotely is a wonderful thing to do. And if things start opening up again, when people start going to coffee shops, maybe sitting outside on the patio just to get out of the house, they need to avoid using any kind of public Wi-Fi connections. The risks are tremendous, and I won't go into all of those now just because we have limited time. But what your users need to do, your listener on the call right now, or in the recording, they need to use their personal hotspot. They need to use their phone configured for tethering. They need to connect that way. And then they're using their Sprint, Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T, whatever service they have to access the internet through that little device, be it their phone or a little individual. You call that little thing a hotspot, which is that small device that you charge up and it's what connects your computer. But that's important. When they're, the, the other thing, the last thing I wanna point out for people working from home is they wanna use what's called web content filtering. So there are tools you can get, for example, they probably have this at their home already where they tell the computer, uh, do not let pictures of naked people come into the house. You know, it's up mm -hmm. to them what they're gonna do. But that would be an example of web content filtering. You're actually controlling what content is and is not allowed into your home. And that's not always foolproof, but it sure does a great job of blocking most of the trouble. 
and their tools like OpenDNS, they'll be able to find open and spelled just like the word DNS is a very popular one that's been around forever. But there are a whole lot of competitors and they all work basically the same way. They redirect requests whenever someone types in www.hello.com, it's gonna see as hello.com an okay website, do its best it can. And if it's not an okay website, it'll block the computer from going there. So the idea is whatever tools you use, even if you let all kinds of pictures come through at the very least, you want to be blocking what we call known bad sites. So that's going to be sites that your redirection knows are bad. It's going to block those. And some people say, you know, Mike, at our house, we just have little or no connectivity. We have trouble with Wi-Fi going down. We have dead spots. One tool that a lot of people use at their home is called Eero, E-E-R-O. And you can get that at Amazon. Amazon actually bought them. And it's essential for me to point out right now I'm saying some company names. We get absolutely zero compensation for any of that. I've just learned that people have told me, hey, Mike, you know, that sounded great what you talked about, but you didn't tell us what we could use. So I'll mm -hmm. pepper those in every now and then. But they're, they're just tools we've seen our customers use and their home users, and there are lots of others. Uh, I'm certainly not saying you have to go with one of those. Talk to your IT pro. They're going to find the one that they like the best. And I think I mentioned that, you know, I won't keep saying that because <laughs> that's established. You know, there, there are a whole bunch of things to do on a home computer. Wow. I mean, that's a, a lot to unpack. Definitely a lot to think about. Certainly, thank you for sharing all those with us. There's certainly ones that I had never heard of and um, a lot to look into to make sure that we're as secure as possible. But one final question that I had for you, because I know it's come up at a lot of organizations, um, especially within material handling, and I know some have been victims of phishing scams. Um, I know IT departments are overwhelmed, you know, every day sending out emails with this is the new scam. And um, as you've said, they, they've gotten very clever with how they're baiting people into clicking on links. Could you just give us a, a few quick kind of things to look for in emails to really be able to identify as best we can a phishing scam? Well, there are a lot of good things. I'm so glad you asked that. One of the most common things that should be a dead giveaway are misspellings in mm -hmm. the message because hopefully that's not quite depends on who you communicate with, uh, I guess, in that area. But another thing to really look for would be generic sounding terms. So if it says something like, dear employee, that should mm -hmm. be a big clue that this is something that is just not right. However, if they say dear and they give the message of your listener, in that situation, that might be something real or it could also be something that is spear phishing. We mentioned earlier about the data aggregation companies and OxyData was one. There's another one called People Data Labs they were accessed by the attackers, so they can get very, very, very specific. But watch out for those. Another thing to be, to be careful of is if you get an attachment that you were not expecting for some reason. And even if it looks like it comes from an organization, it's a really good idea to contact that organization and say, hey, did you really send out an announcement about what needs to be done at your organization based on COVID-19? Because we, it's not gonna affect what we're doing here through organization, you know, just kind of look at things. And of course, anything that has urgency to it, where your sweepstakes package is at the post office, you haven't picked it up yet, it's worth a million dollars, you need to go down there right now or click this link because the post office is closed. 
today, you know, or at night, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. once people get their excitement up, sometimes they make poor decisions. <laughs> Maybe it's only me, but I certainly know when I get very excited or angry or whatever it is, I make poor decisions, which is one reason I'm <laughs> not angry anymore. You <laughs> the choices. Yeah. I, I mean, those are all certainly great tips. I, I know even, you know, looking at the, it, it might look like it comes from somebody you know, but when you really look at, you click on who it came from, it's a much longer unidentifiable address. I found last year, I was actually, had an email, I was looking at it on my phone, and the email came up as a person I knew, and they were asking me a question, yeah. and I responded back, but then their response back just seemed weird. I mean, it didn't seem like mm -hmm. the way that they would talk, and on my phone, it looked like it came from the person. Well, I had to actually click the name to then see the much longer obscure email address and it was a phishing scam but I mean that I, I've always been very aware of them but the way it came through on my phone seemed very normal a question they were asking seemed like a normal question they would ask me um, but it wasn't until they replied you know their end game was basically to go get me to buy gift cards and send them I mean there are some triggers once you get into the conversation but I had two or three correspondence before I realized um, that it was a phishing scam well, all right, that's good. And I'm happy, you know, to hover over the links and see what's going on. The, the attackers have gotten really good, though, at making links that look just like a real link. Right, yeah. Get your magnifying glass out. Sometimes you can see that it's a different link than what you expected. So it's, it's important. They can put characters together, some of them characters that are called special characters, which are not characters you normally see, but they can add some of those together and it makes it look like a literal, what you'd expect for a, a regular character. Something right. else, I, I do wanna put a couple things out there about these phishing scams that'll help. One is if you were to receive an email, for example, from Mahita or somewhere else, and you're not sure if it is, instead of hitting reply, forward the message to Mahita. So that way, you know you're getting to the mojito you've always known. And you can start that out by saying, hey, did you really send me this? Instead of hitting reply, because the attacker can, there's actually a way, in, there's something called an email header, and I won't get real geeky on this, but it can display, here's who sent this, and if you hit reply, here's where it's going to go. But there's really a way you can specify a different reply address in the header. So you may think you're replying to the person where the email was sent from, and you're literally replying to someone in Albonia someplace. But if you forward the message, that helps. And something else I do want people to know because you're asking such a great question on how to spot the phishing email messages and others. The FTC, who we of course all pay taxes to, so you might as well use their resource, but the FTC has some great online cartoons, trainings, lists, and it's of course available to everyone. But if you just Google FTC space, how to recognize and avoid phishing scams. And phishing is spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, so a P-H instead of the F. But they will immediately go to the right website. In fact, if you just put FTC space phishing, you'll end up going to the right section. But I do encourage people to go there, and it tells you how to report phishing if you want to. They just have so many useful resources. It's good stuff for mm -hmm. free. 
Awesome. Thank you. Those are some really good tips. So we made it to the end. If if you've listened to Mahita talk tonight, I know our listeners have said their favorite part of um, these sessions sometimes are the lightning round where we get to know our uh, guests a little bit better. Usually I have 10 quick questions that I'd ask you, um, but I didn't want to cut our interview short. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do today, I'm going to ask you five of our lightning round questions to get to know you a little bit better. I'm going to invite you back and I'll ask you the next five next time because I think we still have a, a whole bunch of really great stuff to cover. Sound okay. good? Sure. All right. So we'll start with the first question. What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Oh, well, I spent a lot of time in South Africa traveling and teaching cybersecurity. And at one point I drove up to, um, well, I, did I drive or fly? I think I flew, no? Anyway, somehow or another I got to Vic Falls. It's been a long time ago. Um, and one of the things they have, they of course have all this tourist stuff. And one of them was to go eat local food. So what I ate is certainly not strange for them, but it was for me. And they had a lot of protein from every different animal you can imagine. And they had, you know, I, I try not to eat much meat, but I know that's not what you're asking. Uh, but they did have these grubs, which I looked at them and just thought, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. But the person who worked there, which of course lives there, said, you know, you're not respecting my culture. You're hurting my feelings. Give oh. it a try. And you'd be surprised. It was actually really good. It tasted like almonds. I went back for more and I, I don't want to gross out your listeners. I would just encourage <laughs> to give them, give them a try because I was shocked. And wow. Apparently they're very nutritious. And I did not have any kind of problems after that. Well, good. That, that is a very interesting food. Um, <laughs> what, have, what have you missed most uh, during this quarantine period that we've gone through? The safety of our family. We have to be really careful about where we go. I have a son who's extra vulnerable. He's super healthy and he thrives, but he's taking a medicine that kind of decreases immune system a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I've certainly missed our freedom. The good news is there's lots of hiking around here, biking, all kinds of stuff we can get out and do, fishing where we're nowhere near another human being. So we do a lot of that, but uh, they don't get to go see movies. They don't get to do the things. Yeah. They yeah. What is the worst job you could have? <laughs> I remember that Discovery <laughs> Channel show. I think it was Discovery where the guys. Dirty, dirty jobs. Yeah. <laughs> My gosh, where do we start? Um, Boy, it's lightning round. Uh, if I thought about that, I, I think the worst job I could have would be one where I had no ability to improve. You know, at least if I was having to, was it Laverne and Shirley? They had to watch the little, I keep seeing shows the grandparents only once will know about, but I think they were picking off something off conveyor belt if they didn't look very good. But <laughs> how are you going to do that faster, better? How can you excel? That would drive me nuts. I want something, even mowing the grass. I want my lines to be straighter than <laughs> ever before. What TV sitcom family would you like to be a member of? I watch almost no TV, except when I was growing up, hence the really old references. So I, I can't even think of a sitcom right now. Can you? <laughs> okay. No, we can move on. What technology, what new technology do you believe will transform the future? AI, definitely AI, although it's not necessarily going to be what people are thinking where you have robots that are cognizant and they aware, are aware of what's going on around them. It's more AI where you're gathering a whole lot of information together and then it allows a computer and electronic device to grab that information to do something better than it's ever done before. 
So for example, even if it's gathering, you know, who are going to be the most interested in material handling products for the people who are listing, they would be able to identify, hey, it's this guy and that gal and this guy and that gal. That would be helpful. But it's also helpful for things like COVID. It's helpful for predicting hurricanes. You know, it, there's so many things where there's all this information out there and people think, wow, you know, if I just knew this, if I just knew that, I'd be able to get the data. Of course, mm -hmm. the problem is in the false news spin people put on it, you make statistics say anything. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has never been more true than it is today, for sure. Um, well, thank you so much, Mike. We certainly learned a lot from your insights today. I would love to have you back. I know our listeners would love to have you back. Um, and I really appreciate it. So thank you again. You're very welcome, Jerry. Thanks for the opportunity. Our mission is to make the world a safer place to live and work. And you're furthering that. And your listener is furthering that too. Well, thank you. Thank you to our audience. This has been another episode of Mejita Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Altergut, Chief Experience Officer of the CX Edge. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.